welcome to the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Monte. Where do your opinions come from? Why do we think what we think and why do we disagree? In each episode, we'll talk with thought leaders from around the world to help us understand the nature of opinion, how ideas form, why we argue, and what that means for society. Join us at palia.com, the encyclopedia of opinion. Today, we are super excited to be bringing on David Robson um, to talk to us about intelligence. David is a science writer, former journalist with the BBC, and author of The Intelligence Trap. David, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure. David, I think probably given the title of your latest book, we should perhaps start at the beginning and ask you um, not just what is intelligence, but I think the theme of your book is why do we think so badly about intelligence? Mm, yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess my book starts from the premise that for basically 100, uh, for 100 years, we've had this kind of definition of intelligence that's born from the IQ test. And it looks very much at things like our abstract reasoning, our verbal reasoning, um, and nonverbal reasoning. But all of these kinds of skills that were meant to serve you well throughout your life in all decision making. Um, and, you know, we do know that the IQ test is incredibly good at predicting certain things. It correlates very well with academic success, which shouldn't be that surprising because it was actually designed primarily to predict who would do well academically. So, you know, it's really serving its purpose there. But we do know there are some correlations with, like, uh, different aspects of life, including your career um, after academia and also things like your health and well-being. So it serves us quite well. But the question for me was whether those... Um, those skills that we measure with the IQ test, whether they really covered the whole of human thinking, as was once claimed, and whether sometimes they might actually backfire. Because, um, you know, when I was uh, working as a journalist, I would often come across these stories of uh, these kind of Nobel Prize winners who had crazy ideas after they'd won their prize. Um, like uh, there was this guy called Kerry Mullis who developed the polymerase chain reaction which is like fundamental to all kinds of genetic testing. You know, it's really an incredible discovery. But, um, but then he was a climate change denier. He uh, believed in astrology, you know, uh, all kinds of pseudoscientific ideas. He was an AIDS denialist. He claimed that the link between the HIV virus and AIDS was actually a complete conspiracy created by governments and the kind of medical profession. So clearly he didn't have very well-founded beliefs in lots of different areas, despite his genius in another area. And my question was like, how is that possible? If we have high intelligence, surely that should help us to appraise information rationally and wisely, and to come to the best possible decisions based on the evidence at hand. And yet clearly lots of people weren't doing that. Uh, so that was the basis for my book. And then I kind of um, explored all the different ways that intelligence can be useful, but also the ways that it can backfire, and what other kind of cognitive traits and abilities we need to avoid those traps. That's fascinating for us. Obviously, Palia Podcast is looking at how opinions get made, how we think, why we think what we think. Um, and the fact that you so sharply skewer this idea that intelligence as we currently measure it, and it's you know, widely, widely measured across the world, is a really pretty poor um, marker of all sorts of things that we would usually consider clever. Um, I'm not sure, trying to find out another word for for in, for intelligence there, but you and your book look at um, 
multiple other forms of sort of testing or of scales of in sort of intelligence value. You look at emotional intelligence, practical intelligence, cultural, rational even. Can you walk me through some of those alternative models that have come as a reaction really at this very deterministic sort of term and IQ approach that so dominated the way we thought about smart in the 20th century? Absolutely. So I think one of the most influential theories from my book comes from this scientist called Robert Sternberg. And he proposed there were um, three essential forms of intelligence. So there was um, uh, the kind of analytical intelligence that we've talked about. So that is very much how well you can um, learn and understand abstract ideas and uh, think in a um, uh, uh, kind of perform things like a uh, abstract uh, nonverbal reasoning. So, you know, stuff that is essential, we know for lots of careers, um, especially things like law or uh, science or medicine. Um, but then he also looked at two other forms of intelligence. And one is practical intelligence, which might sound um, like you mean kind of, I don't know, someone who's very technically able, like maybe someone who's good at mechanics or, you know, that kind of um, practical skill. But actually, he uh, looks at it through a kind of broader lens. And practical intelligence for him is really about how well we are able to kind of plan and then carry through our actions to meet our goals. Um, so that could be something as simple as knowing how to prioritize your actions. It could also include some of those elements of emotional intelligence that you mentioned. So knowing just how to persuade people, knowing who to go to in your office to get things done, um, just essentially being able to uh, to kind of um, succeed in achieving your goals. And he found that actually when you measure practical intelligence, it doesn't always correlate very well with the analytical intelligence. They do seem to be two separate traits. And practical intelligence could be useful in any kind of career, even the careers where actually you do need a lot of analytical intelligence too. So in science, for instance, you still have to be able to plan experiments and you know how uh, you have to know how to form good collaborations and to get your work published. So, you know, you could still be very high in analytical intelligence, but maybe perform worse than someone who's higher in practical intelligence uh, because they are just good at getting things done. Um, the third form of intelligence that Sternberg looked at was creative intelligence. And that's not so much like um, kind of your artistic merit or, you know, whether you're a good painter or a good writer, but it's much more about being able to think counterfactually so trying to kind of uh, hypothesize about the different ways that events might turn out and to try to imagine scenarios that haven't yet happened or even scenarios in the past that didn't happen, but try to work out what would have happened if the circumstances had been different. And again, that is incredibly useful in all kinds of careers. You know, in business, it's really important for you to be able to consider multiple hypotheses, for you to be able to find the best course of action in any a particular um, scenario to kind of look at that uncertainty and to to be able to juggle juggle multiple ideas at any one time. Um, so those three forms of intelligence, he says, um, are kind of largely independent. And you know you could be high in all three, you could be high in one and low in the other two. But the important thing is that according to Robert Sternberg, you can manage to cultivate each one separately and independently. So if you realize you have low practical intelligence, you can start to think about ways to improve that. And that should improve your success later in life. That's fascinating that it's because I wonder whether um, these alternative forms of value or the, these, these, these different value scales around intelligence, which have emerged in the course of the last what, 20, 30 years, 
whether there's a politics to them. I'm certainly interested in the politics of IQ tests. The, I, the IQ test itself has been used to justify all sorts of pretty hideous race science thinking. Um, and, um, and also understands intelligence, rational intelligence in that sense, as a sort of disembodied, it's sort of a, a, a brain not really in a body. Those are two big shifts over the course of the last few years, certainly decades. One that the brain genuinely does exist inside a body. We can't think of intelligence outside of our sort of corporate cells, our, our, our corporeal selves. But also, as we've started to look at all the bias implicit in um, the original IQ test, Professor Thurman and his his approach to intelligence. Can you talk us through a little bit about that, the, the politics of the IQ test historically? Absolutely. So, I mean, Lewis Thurman uh, did have some reprehensible ideas. You know, he was um, quite racist. Um, you know, there's lots of like um, kind of nasty assumptions in his early writing about how, you know, uh, different immigrant populations in the U.S., uh, would perform, he just assumed they would perform worse in his uh, IQ test. And then he kind of, you know, used this kind of confirmation bias to kind of uh, find evidence for these assumptions, but he didn't test them thoroughly. And of course, now most scientists would accept that actually he was completely, completely wrong, that those ideas were completely unfounded. Um, and, you know, the, uh, it's the IQ test originally was tied to the eugenics movement as well. There were these ideas that maybe you could kind of control the way people um, reproduced to try to boost the uh, IQ of the population. You know, all terrible, reprehensible ideas. I would say that actually we should still try to separate the fundamental idea of intelligence and the IQ test from those other ideas, because it can still be a useful tool, even if you kind of remove it from all of those terrible, uh, terrible theories. Um, and that is still very good evidence that IQ and uh, that kind of um, abstract intelligence is important in, in lots of different circumstances. So I don't think that should necessarily be used as an argument against um, the whole concept of intelligence. But I do think it is important to recognize that, uh, to kind of recognize that history, and also to recognize that IQ even today is so closely linked to things like someone's uh, socioeconomic background. So you know, the richer your family, the more well-off your family, the kind of higher you will score on an IQ test just because you've had so many more resources that have helped to cultivate that particular type of analytical intelligence. Um, now, what I find really interesting about these other measures that I mentioned, the practical intelligence and the creative intelligence, is that they don't seem to be so closely linked to someone's socioeconomic background. And that's what Robert Sternberg found. So he has worked with lots of universities to try to include these other measures in their entrance exams to get to Stanford, for example. And what he found was that actually, by using those other measures, you do get a much more diverse population of students. And importantly, those students then go on to perform much better throughout their degrees than the people who were just measured according to the analytical intelligence. So it seems like you are really recognizing some important cognitive skills that had been missed before that aren't dependent on your socioeconomic background. And you're really ensuring that the people who will benefit the most from the education do get those places. Um, and so I think that's a very encouraging move that, um, uh, that we can now start to, to try to um, avoid the traps of the past and to move forward in this way. Um, the problem, according to Robert Stamberg, is that even once universities have kind of 
proven this point, they often still revert back to the old measures of intelligence because it is quicker to uh, perform the selection in that way, you know, just based on one test. Um, so there's a bit of inertia, but I'm really hopeful that in the future, as more and more people find out about this research, that uh, uh, that we uh, that admissions in university and in the workplace can be much better because of this. So that's fascinating. Your book is packed full of hilarious and sometimes very frightening examples of extremely clever people doing remarkably silly things. Conan Doyle, for example, um, mm. his obsession with mediums and fairies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But actually, you're just you're you're jumping straight into a. a uh, you're, you're describing a phenomenon that you spend a lot of time on, which is this idea of motivated reasoning. I think of it in the context of your academics who have, perhaps in many cases, achieved the positions that they have because of a particular kind of intelligence, being therefore perhaps a little loath to change their understanding of intelligence, which would you know, have an impact on the kind of students that they might bring in who might resemble them a little bit less. We are obviously, at, with the Palio podcast, fascinated by where opinions and beliefs come from, and therefore the fact that ideas always, always exist inside a kind of framing. How much of our thinking is therefore sort of motivated? Can you sort of unpack this idea of motivated reasoning and my side bias, etc., so that we can look at, it, look at it a little bit more deeply? Absolutely. So, you know, this idea of my side bias goes back to the 1980s, where there was a really fascinating study by David Perkins at Harvard University, who was trying to look at um, how well students at various ages were able to kind of reason about uh, somewhat controversial issues like euthanasia um, or abortion. And um, what these studies showed was that the more intelligent the students were, or the more advanced they were within their education, the better they were at coming up with the reasons to support their initial uh, kind of opinion or point of view, but it did nothing to uh, help them to try to gather evidence or to construct arguments that might oppose their own point of view. So they were really very good at persuasion, but they weren't necessarily very good at trying to uh, come to a balanced, uh, truthful, uh, kind of um, more nuanced opinion of the issue at hand. And that's what we mean by motivated reasoning, really. It's the idea that we can construct arguments to rationalize what we believe, uh, and we use our intelligence to demolish the arguments against what we believe, and that we're not really looking at it in an even-handed, balanced way to come up with a rational judgment. Um, now, I think the one of the most uh, striking examples of that in recent years is when you look at people's beliefs in climate change, uh, whether they think that um, climate change is some kind of conspiracy or whether they agree with the scientific consensus that the that human carbon emissions are causing uh, global temperatures to rise. Um, now, you know, there's not really much scientific debate about this anymore from the people who actually study the climate. 97% um, of scientists agree that human carbon emissions really are leading to global warming. But, um, but what you find is that there's a really strong divide between people um, who have a strong investment in uh, kind of free market economics. Um, so in the US, that might be uh, members of the Republican Party and people who are less embedded within that worldview. So the members of the Democrat Party. And um, what you find there is that the more intelligent someone is and specifically 
uh, the better their understanding of basic science, the more polarized their opinions on climate change become. So the Republicans, the more intelligent Republicans are actually more likely to be climate change deniers than the less intelligent Republicans. And the more intelligent Democrats are more likely to endorse the scientific consensus compared to the less intelligent Democrats. So at the extremes of intelligence, you really see this strong divergence of opinion. And that's motivated reasoning. They're using their intelligence to support something that's very important to their identity, but they're not really looking at the evidence rationally in the way that you might hope, given their intelligence. So David, this is fascinating because you talk elsewhere about the difference between intelligence and rationalism. And it seems that what you're you use those terms just now as you describe the differences here. There's intelligence at work, but not in the service of rationalism. How do you di how do you differentiate the two? Mm, I mean, I would so I would say, and I think I put this in the book that um, you know, in this case, intelligence is kind of a tool of propaganda rather than truth seeking. And I guess that's the difference that I want to make here is that if you're looking at um, rationality, then you're really trying to find the truth and you're trying to weigh up the evidence in the most intellectually rigorous way possible. Um, now, um, we know that people with high intelligence alone don't do that. Um, so you need something else to encourage you to, to, um, to use your intelligence in the most honest way possible, most intellectually honest way possible, in the most open-minded way possible. Um, now, we know there are lots of different uh, traits that can improve your rationality. Um, and I would say that uh, uh, the most important is curiosity. So we know that curiosity is separate from intelligence. You can not have high intelligence, but you can be incredibly curious. Um, and the more curious someone is, the more likely they are to escape something like motivated reasoning. Um, and that's just because their kind of love of knowledge and their kind of intense curiosity and interest in the world means that they actually relish the opportunity to find a fact that disagrees with their point of view. And they want to dig deep to understand why that might be the case. Um, and so that's incredibly protective. And we see this, for instance, with views on climate change or gun control or fracking, in all of these controversial issues, that actually the more curious someone is, the better able they are to analyze new evidence without letting their preconceptions blind them to the truth. You have this beautiful line from, um, I think, Canadian professor Gordon Pennycook in your book, which says something like, um, if you're not willing to think, you aren't practically speaking intelligent. Um, but you're, which is which is a, a sort of a, a lovely put down um, to that lack of curiosity. But can we go back to motivated reasoning? Because it's something that we are all engaged in all the time. What where does it come from? Why do we why do we engage in motivated reasoning? Why do such clever people engage in motivated reasoning? But why do all of us do it? Where does it come from? So I think it comes from this kind of uh, desire to protect our identity in some way. So if you look at something like climate change or say politics in general, often our political position is very intimately tied with our own identity and with our social relationships with others. So it's really intensely important to us that we preserve that. Um, and so I think we use the motivated reasoning to, to just to try to protect that. And it can sometimes feel like if you concede on one point, so say you concede on um, climate change and you kind of accept that actually the uh, scientific consensus is correct, 
then you start to worry that your whole, whole worldview is going to crumble around you and that all of those other social connections, all of those other opinions that you've held dear, that they might fall, uh, fall apart as well. And that's incredibly threatening to the self. So the much uh, kind of easier way around that is to just apply your intelligence to kind of uh, patch up any of the chinks in your armor um, and to, to kind of try to use your intelligence just to dismiss those, can, um, those uh, alternative arguments out of hand uh, because that allows you to maintain this kind of facade around you. Um, so it's a kind of a very natural phenomenon and something that I think we can empathize with. Um, but I think the important thing to realize and to recognize in all of this is that actually, you know, your whole worldview doesn't have to crumble just because you uh, admit that you're wrong on one particular point. Um, and that there's lots of ways that you can kind of integrate different opinions into your worldview while still maintaining your sense of self. Um, and so that leads me on to one of these uh, kind of other traits that is really predictive of good decision making. And that's the growth mindset by um, which was origin originated with the research of Carol Dweck at Stanford University. Um, and so put simply, the growth mindset is just this uh, kind of implicit theory about yourself that intelligence uh, is something that can improve incrementally with time. Um, so, you know, the more you work at something, the better you'll be. It doesn't mean that you'll be world beating, but you can always improve. And what's really interesting is that people who have that mindset seem to be less susceptible to motivated reasoning and seem to be more intellectually humble. So they're much more likely to uh, try to understand the kind of other point of view, the other side of the argument, than people who have a fixed mindset. That's the idea that your intelligence is fixed. And that, and you can really see how actually, if you have a fixed mindset, the idea that your intelligence is uh, kind of innate and unchangeable, then if you concede that you're wrong on one important point, that makes you question your kind of your intelligence in general, your thinking in general, and that becomes much more threatening. Then the people with the growth mindset don't have that. Just like the people who are more curious, they can accept that they can evolve and grow and change and that their opinions can change with time and with new evidence without feeling so threatened. There's an enormous amount there to, to, to delve into. Um, going back a little um, to talking about the, the causes of motivated reasoning, you flagged two things if I'm right. One is um, the fact that most of our thinking is most our thinking is most comfortable when it all sits inside one perspective, a worldview in a mm. sense. Um, and the second is that we motivate our reasoning for social reasons as well. On the first point around worldview, um, in the face of lockdown sitting in the UK, one of the things which struck me was the almost total Venn diagram crossover between hard Brexiteers and hard anti-lockdowners. Mm. And looking at that, trying to understand where it comes from, it seems that these political, but also apparently scientific or economically motivated thinking um, is much more about ultimate value scheme than it is actually about the detail of the argument. And so far as both of those, um, those positions, hard Brexit and hard anti-lockdown, value the notion of liberty possibly higher over a whole series of other values like collective safety or protection from harm or whatever it might be. So there's a there's a worldview thing there which is fascinating. And we do often find ourselves looking at um, 
ideological groupings and seeing you can often predict where people are going to sit across various different arguments. But the other key point that you make is this social um, integrity, a fear of losing, um, a fear of losing your community. There's a great line, um, which is something that goes along the lines of um, people prefer to be wrong together than right alone. Mm. That, you talk about that in an evolutionary sense as well. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, when you look at things like motivated reasoning, actually, in the um, in our evolutionary past, it wasn't necessarily so maladaptive. Um, uh, so, you know, we know that humans, one of the things that defines humans is that we do live in much bigger societies and groups uh, than other apes. And it's now thought that our intelligence evolved to help us to navigate those social relationships. Now, uh, within that group, you know, you there was a bit of competition to get ahead. You know, you want to be able to persuade, to present your own argument convincingly to persuade others, whether that's just to help you to kind of rise the hierarchy um, and to become the leader, or whether it's just to try to persuade others to kind of share their resources with you. So persuasion was, in that sense, was actually more important than necessarily being rational. Now, the idea here is that actually the group as a whole, when you live in a relatively small group um, that's very interconnected, um, say of 120 people, you know, where everyone knows each other and can have face-to-face -face arguments, is that the personal biases, the personal kind of um, motivated reasoning can begin to uh, cancel each other out. So one side will present one point of view, the other will present the other point of view, um, and eventually they can uh, kind of reach an agreement that is a kind of compromise between the two. So it, it was actually, you know, even if individually they weren't very rational as a group, the idea is that they would have been pretty rational in their thinking. And that was really fundamental to our success as a species. Now, according to this line of thinking, um, the big problem today is that we don't have those kind of uh, close face-to-face -face connections with the people who are likely to disagree with us. You know, it's very easy on the internet um, or in the media to... Uh, only uh, kind of surround yourself by arguments that agree with yourself already. And, you know, if you, it's very easy to have a knee-jerk reaction to a news article that disagrees with you if you don't actually have to have a face-to-face -face argument with that person um, and if you don't have to kind of acknowledge their arguments uh, in a conversation. Um, so the idea is that because of the way that our modern societies are structured, um, we are actually just left having our own uh, motivated reasoning without it being corrected by people, uh, by the people around us. And that is why we see such polarization today in a way that you probably wouldn't have hundreds or thousands of years ago. That's um, heartbreaking. <laughs> um, but let's perhaps talk about the polarization that we're seeing today from the outside. Um, and actually, most of the statistics support this. We are certainly at our most polarized in a generation, at least. Um, we have riots in the streets around race and around statues and around um, transgender rights and um, and even around rationalism. But um, so wh what do you think with your intelligence hat on with your with your with your looking at motivated reasoning and my side biases and um, the capacity of for smart people to box themselves into into uh, un untenable positions? How do you see this sort of societal fracture? What's going on now? And how do we get out of it? Hmm. Um, so 
you know, I think there's um, this kind of assumption that we all live in echo chambers, um, like I just mentioned with the, uh, you know, especially with social media, it's kind of uh, exacerbating that because you can only follow the kind of people who agree with you and it's very easy to then like get caught up in this big pile on on the people who disagree with you because we have this kind of sense of we're one step removed from both sets of people so it's much easier to get quite vicious in the arguments against the people who disagree with you and you know you you can form this huge community of people who seem to back up your point of view so that's going to increase people's confidence in in their ideals in a way that isn't um ideal I mean, I would actually say that, uh, you know, if, if people take anything from my book, it is this idea that we need more intellectual humility. And I just don't think the media today um, that we consume really encourages that, uh, especially on something like Twitter. You know, you're kind of, is gamified opinion making so that you're, uh, you are rewarded much more than ever in the past for being persuasive, for being emotive, rather than for being kind of moderate and rational. Um, so there's no doubt that that has contributed to uh, this polarization. Um, I mean, I think there is other interesting uh, research in the US, for instance, looking at the kinds of communi communities people actually live in now. And um, I don't know for, for certain why this is, but there's definitely some evidence that even geographically where people live, uh, you're much more likely to be surrounded by people with similar political views to yourself. Whereas in the past, maybe you would have in the US, a Republican living next to a Democrat, and they could kind of share their um, their views much more uh, collegiately and constructively, whereas today you're much more likely to just live amongst Democrats or amongst Republicans. So I think there's a big issue here. Um, it's much bigger than just the, the time we spend online. It's also um, about the people we mix with in general. There's just this big divide uh, in our social connections, and then that is exacerbating the polarization of our political views. All of which is is, um, is extremely depressing. There's actually work done by the Reuters Institute and Rasmus Kleist Nielsen, amongst others, to show that, that we don't live in, in um, we're not more and more in, in filter bubbles and echo chambers, um, mm. because we're actually confronted with lots of opinions that we disagree with, but precisely to your point, they are presented to us as objects of attack or of uh, or as prey almost <laughs> so either predator or prey and we are whipped in by you know, precisely the, the both the algorithms and the business models of of, uh, of of social media platforms to see them as these targets for us so uh, you know, your point about the internet rewarding us for being convincing and emotive and not rational is all too strong precisely in that context it turns out that twitter and facebook and the rest do a great job by showing us things that we disagree with because it triggers us in some sense um, yeah. So you, uh, I just wanted to, I wanted to, uh, uh, to come back to something you said a little earlier about um, face to face, smaller communities being able to talk to each other and becoming rational or more rational in that face to face articulation. It's something that um, another one of our guests, Eve Perlman, um, who works on uh, bringing polarized communities back together, has also said this extraordinarily important human element. Have you have you seen research that backs that up? Have you, um, or, or are we sort of seeing the opposite of it, which is that we can see what happens when people don't come together in person? So perhaps coming together in person would fix it. Hmm. I can't recall uh, seeing the research that absolutely backs that up, but I do think you are absolutely correct in um, in the fact that actually 
social media does kind of thrive on outrage and um and you know it's not enough to just try to kind of uh change our online behavior so there was a study from a couple of years ago that did ask people to follow um kind of highly polarizing people from the uh kind of opposite part of the political spectrum and that didn't make people more uh more uh, rational or more open-minded at all in fact it solidified their political opinions uh simply because whenever they saw someone um presenting the argument that they didn't like probably in very emotional very charged language uh the kind of outrage that they felt uh just pushed them even further away from them so it's not i think like a lot of people especially after the 2016 brexit referendum and the american election kind of were trying to listen to other points of view but if you go about it in the wrong way if you you know go about it in quite a superficial way then that really can backfire um i mean i would say from the my own research that i've looked at is that we should really when we're trying to form any kind of political opinion we should try to avoid uh that kind of highly charged uh um kind of emotional argument and we should try to interrogate the data behind it so just try to think a little bit more rationally about what the uh kind of numbers actually show us on any particular issue so to take a little bit of distance from the kind of argument that's going on on social media i think is one of the best ways to avoid um the kind of polarized motivated reasoning one of the perhaps compounding difficulties is that we have lived in a sort of reality consensus since the end of the uh, of the cold war and certainly in and in the west for longer um with a broad sense of which values we thought were 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 important to us, um, one of the great surprises with all these sort of big debates, this, these existential debates, is that you realise that you're not just arguing on points of fact; you're actually arguing on very deep, profound points of value, and um, that's the piece which is hardest because you're not arguing against detail; you're arguing against worldview, against what people think of as important um and in a sense it's therefore no surprise that you end up dehumanizing the other side because the things that they value are not things that you consider to be the the important human values how do we how do we deal with that because if you look at if you're looking at the subtext of say twitter fights that that dehumanization of either side is meant it's not an accident people genuinely do think that people who oppose black lives matter somehow are less human um than uh than, than they themselves are mm, it's difficult i mean yeah i'll at least take a minute to think about that because i think there are some values that you really should stick to and to say you know being opposed to racism you know i would say is something that maybe it's just my biases talking but to me it just feels like a a kind of there's a firm line there that you shouldn't cross. Um, and that's one of the things that I was worried that people might read from my book was that I would be endorsing this kind of um, excessive open-mindedness to the point that you don't hold anything uh, kind of true to yourself. Um, you know, and you just accept anything that goes, uh, that's being said. You know, there's this saying, be open-minded, but don't be so open-minded your brain falls out. And I think that's really important that you can still have moral convictions, but I think you can change the way you argue with the people who disagree with you. Um, so there's a lot of research showing that, um, you know, civility in these kinds of conversations, even if initially it comes from just one side, uh, can actually be incredibly persuasive. 
So if you don't rise to debate, if you try to avoid being overly emotional and confrontational, um, people respond well to that and are much more likely to come to your point of view. Now, obviously, that's not easy, especially if someone is holding truly reprehensible views. And, you know, sometimes I think righteous anger is necessary. You know, we have to kind of deal with each context um, separately, I think, rather than having any hard and fast rules. But I certainly think on lots of issues, uh, we would do a lot better if we uh, kind of just try to tone down our own uh, kind of discourse and arguing and try to uh, try to be respectful of the other person's opinions, even if we profoundly disagree with them. David, this is lovely because it allows us to come into um, perhaps the naughtiest piece here at all, which is um, you you need an open mind as much as possible without perhaps not in your mind fallout, but your heart fallout. There is, um, there is a, 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 a behind all thinking as you've articulated it there is a, there is a there is a value scheme and as you say racism should be one of those things and thankfully i think now is one of those things that is broadly understood to be a moral wrong but that moral piece that suddenly when you bring morality into um into the into the question you've kind of pulled out of rationalism and here i want to therefore sort of complicate a little bit this approach to rationalism because there's a strong argument that rationalism itself is a political move. Turns out that we've just seen quite recently that one of the safe spaces for rationalists on the internet, Slate Star Codex, um, has been was, was, was shut because the New York Times was planning to out its founder and leader um, who felt that he was going to be very brutally attacked should he be outed. Um, the rationalist community turned around and said, well, why would you possibly do this to, 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 to this person? There's no harm here. This is a space for rationalists to articulate purely in rational terms a whole series of ideas about the way the world might be, or actually science, from the very detail to the very large. But others have turned and said, rationalism is a beautiful word, and it sounds entirely unloaded. But if you look at the rationalist communities on the internet, they are vastly made up of hyper-educated, white men. And there's another argument which suggests that rationalism, and it goes back to your original point about the IQ test and Professor Terman, um, this particular understanding of what intelligence is or what reasoning should be, it turns out serves one demographic a lot better than everyone else. So is there politics to rationalism? Is there is rationalism actually a very loaded approach to thinking? Mm, that's an interesting point of view. I mean, so I have to say I'm not deeply embedded in the kind of um, rationalist community. Um, so I don't, and I, yeah, I've never looked firmly at the um, kind of an in-depth at the statistics to see exactly like what the demographics are with that. But I don't, to be honest, I don't think there should be anything um, about the idea of being a more rational thinker that should be exclusive to any particular demographic. And I think the problem here might just be that those ideas, for whatever reason, aren't reaching um, people of different demographics. Um, and you can see how that might be if uh, levels of um, kind of education, you know, are generally go to be kind of uh, richer members of our society. Uh, let me put that differently. If um, richer members of our society are more educated, and they're more likely to be exposed to these kinds of ideas, then that probably is going to get a higher number of white people at the moment. But obviously it shouldn't be that way. And if we try to make sure that educational opportunities are equal to 
uh, all demographics, uh, then you would hope that those uh, that that particular pattern would disappear. Um, so I don't I don't think that rationality should be inherently political at all. In fact, I think it should be the opposite. And if we, I would say that if we're seeing that, then it's really a problem of outreach and making connections with the people uh, from different communities. Um, and just to go back to the point about kind of um, uh, kind of morality and whether that can be rational. Well, I think there will be elements of morality that you know are not empirical. Um, but I do think with something like racism, you can argue against racism from a completely empirical, completely rational point of view. So I actually think there are some moral issues that can benefit a lot from taking a more rational approach to the information and the data. David, that's been absolutely fascinating. And I'm enormously grateful for the chance to talk through these issues with you. Um, your book was wonderful. This conversation has been hugely helpful for us. Many thanks indeed. That was the Palia podcast from Palia.com, the encyclopedia of opinion.